from Kurtco Media. Standing in the factory watching the car being built, there's an emotional connection that takes place. You want to relive that experience of watching them install the dash and the glass and the engine and the car coming down on the engine. That was Frank Mandarano, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome back with myself and Frank Monterano. Frank, it's good to have you back on the show, and we're going to pick up where we left off. But first, let me introduce Frank to those who might not have joined for the first go-round. Frank is an Italian car lover and a Maserati aficionado, and in a lot of ways, I'd call him the Maserati guru. Frank kept the flame of the Trident alive during the 1980s and 1990s. He founded the MIE, which is the Maserati information exchange. Really, Maserati enthusiasts know that as the parts and restoration mecca for these great cars back in the day. But you've done more than that. You're the founder of Concorso Italiano. To me, it's the best Concorso car event in the world. You're also the founder of Car Guide Tour Italian. We'll talk about that. Last episode, we talked about all things Maserati. But this time, let's broaden the conversation a little bit. Talk about the place where Italian car history and some of the best food is made. You told us about your first trip to Italy and your first encounter with a Maserati. What happened after you made that first Maserati discovery? I had purchased the Maserati 3500 GT. It immediately broke. And then I spent a year finding parts. And that's when I decided to found this club together with my wife. And that brought us into the mid 70s. We called Mr. Shell Cavalli in San Francisco and introduced ourselves as a Maserati club. And he at the time was in business with Mr. Di Tommaso. And Mr. Cavalli had the Western rights to distribute Maseratis. And import them. And so Shell Cavalli cleared the way for us to go to the factory in Italy in February of 78. This would have been my second time in Modena with a visit to the factory and to meet Mr. Di Tommaso, who is now the new owner of Maserati. We landed at the Lenarte airport and we were met at the airport with a driver and a brand new Kayalami. That's a rare Maserati. Most people in America don't know what that is because it was never brought over here. It was never imported into the U.S. They didn't make that many of them. I don't think they made more than 100 of them. But the Kailami was a car that derived from the Longchamp, which was a Di Tommaso two-door car that was sent to Frua and freshened up. Tom Charter did the Longchamp. Di Tommaso took the Longchamp and sent it over to Frua, and Senior Frua freshened up the Longchamp, and the Kailami was derived from that design. And the Kailami, of course, was named for the famous racetrack in South Africa, where Pietro Rodriguez had great success in the Cooper Maserati V12. So they named their cars after racetracks and after wins, typically with the exception of the Merak. Hermano Corgi met us at the airport. He was our driver to take us down to the factory. And of course, we're nine hours of jet lag landing in Italy. And we get in this Kailami and this guy is going 125 miles an hour down the autostrada. Back then, they really didn't have any speed limits. And he's pulling right up behind somebody about three feet from the rear bumper. And then they would drift over to the right and then he would go past them. It was an amazing experience riding with this test driver. And what we've come to find out was a serious engineer from the experimental department who worked on a lot of the racing cars and was involved in testing the birdcage and the newest cars that they were experimenting with at the time, of course, would have been the B-Turbo. He had Maserati oil instead of blood in his veins. From that moment we met, he and I had become good friends even to today. When I go to Modena, I usually run into him in the piazza or I'll give him a call and we'll meet for a coffee. 
So we arrived at the Canal Grande Hotel and we checked in. And Mr. Gavali had made arrangements for all expenses paid to our pleasant surprise. What a class act. We get a call from the front desk and they say, Mr. DiStomaso requests you to have dinner with them downstairs at 7.30. And we said, okay. Again, we're all jet lagged out. So we arrived downstairs in the restaurant and there is Mr. DiStomaso, his wife Isabella, his son Santiago, and one of Santiago's friends. Santiago was, I think, about 19 at the time. Remember, I'm like 34, 32 not very old. And so we're sitting at this round horseshoe style booth that was his favorite booth. And we're sitting there and we meet and niceties are exchanged and we're starting to have dinner and we're talking about Maserati. I bring up the Ghibli and how beautiful the Ghibli was. And he said, yes, I designed it. And I made the big mistake of saying, well, I'm sorry, but the way I understand it is Giorgetto Giugiaro designed it. And he said adamantly, no, I designed it. In a really <laughs> gruff voice. And I think I pushed back maybe one more time and said, well, I'm pretty sure it was designed by Jujaro. And so we kind of got off to a little bit of a bad start there. Boy, that's Caesar rewriting history, isn't it? Since then, I've come to learn whenever you speak to any Italian about a car, if they were anywhere near the car, they designed it or they engineered it. <laughs> you talk to Di Tommaso, he did all the engineering on the cars. If you talk to Giulio Alfieri, he designed it, he engineered it. They all kind of claim credit for the car, no matter how small of a portion they are involved in it. So every morning, there'd be a new driver to come and pick us up. We really got the five-star treatment. That was thanks to Mr. Cavalli. Every morning, a driver would be waiting for us. So they'd ring us in our room, and they'd say, your driver's ready. And so we'd come downstairs, and there'd be a driver there, and he would take us over to the factory, and we'd spend some time at the factory. And the next morning, a driver came down and would take us over to some restoration shops and some other places and take us to a shoe shop. I don't know what they're thinking. But one morning, he said, your driver's there. And we came downstairs, and we said, well, where's the driver? And he says, it's Mr. Bertocchi over there. I looked over there and it was actually Garino Bertocchi, the man that was with Alfieri Maserati in 1914 and 1926. He had to be a hundred years old. He was like at least 75 years old, but boy, could he drive. He couldn't speak any English. <laughs> so, Senor Mandarano, see, see, see. And we got into a Longchamp and Garino Bertocchi drove my wife and I out to the Di Tommaso factory. So, Garino Bertocchi tears off down via Canal Grande doing about 70 miles an hour. It's just a frightening ride. And then he turns left on Via Emilia and he cranks it up. Meanwhile, he's turning around talking to me in the back seat. My wife is in the front seat. I'm in the back seat. He's turning around talking to me in Italian going blah, 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 blah. I mean, the guy was an excellent driver. So we get out to Di Tommaso. My wife and I are white. Drenched in sweat and scared to death. It was a harrowing drive. So that was that day, and that went on for three or four days, and then we finally left and went off to Turin. And in Turin, we went, of course, over to meet Mr. Giugiaro at Ital Design. He had been expecting us, and we talked with him and whatnot, and I was asking him through his interpreter, he doesn't speak English, I told him a Maserati club, and at the time I had a Maserati Bora, of course he designed the Maserati Bora, and he gave me a lithograph of the Maserati Bora, which was very nice, and he signed it, and I have it up on my wall here behind me, and it says, to my fiend, he misspelled friend. 
friend. When you're Mr. Jajaro, you don't need to know how to spell. You just need to know how to draw cars. I guess when he left for town, he went to found Atal Design. His first car for his own company, I guess, was the Bizzarini Manta, that wild three-seater of which he made one. He's a great guy with a tremendous sense of humor. And one of his claims to fame is he's very good at naming cars. That's interesting because a designer usually doesn't get to name his creation. The Golf GTI was his name. The Viper was his name. And it goes on and on and on. He once explained to me about all the names that he came up with, and he named all those cars. That's fantastic. Now, did you tell him that you were sorry to learn that he wasn't the designer of the original Maserati Ghibli? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't. So we got around to talking about Frua, because I also had a Mistral Spider, and Frua was a very important designer for me, and I really liked the work that he did. Some of the prettiest cars, they're so clean and so elegant and so understated. I ended up having three or four, maybe five of his prototype cars. So he said, ah, no problem. And so his nephew, Giuliani Molinari, who spoke very good English, and he was in charge of PR at the time, Giuliani took us over to Mr. Frua's studio in his little mini Cooper. And there's my wife and I in his little mini Cooper, and I'm not a small guy, and we're in his mini Cooper, and we're driving across town. Giuliani took us over to Frua's office, and Frua's wife, Gina, was the receptionist. So we come in, and Giuliani rattles off some Italian, ah, buongiorno, signor Mandarano, Mrs. Signora Mandarano, and then, you know, Mr. Prua, blah, blah. He wasn't there. So she said, oh, we're delighted. And he says, well, they're big fans of yours, and blah, blah, blah. And he left. So there's Janet and I sitting in Mr. Frua's office, waiting for the big guy to return. And he was big. He was very rotund. Mr. Frua didn't shy away from a good bowl of pasta. Frua arrives, and he doesn't speak any English. And he, we shake hands and niceties. And he takes us into his studio, and he walks us around, and he shows us these drawings. And I remember there was a drawing of a Rolls Royce, like a one-fifth scale or one-half scale up on his drawing board that he was working on at the time. And he had lots of things around. When Mr. Frua died, his wife Gina gave my wife and I 13 of his chalk bottles. We have two of the chalk models. I sold all the rest of them with the Maserati business, but I kept the last chalk model that he was working on when he passed away. And it was a design study for a BMW. And she signed it, Gina Frua, and she dated it. What an incredible artifact. And during that period after his death, I visited there. I was there in 1981 when he died. I'd been returned turning to Italy every year. And I made a VHS video, which I still have. Mrs. Frua and Mike Robinson, the designer Mike Robinson from Seattle, we did a walkthrough of Frua's studio and we captured that moment in time. And I videoed everything. And Mike translated and Mrs. Frua was telling us what this was and what that was and what was going on over here and over there. It's about a 30 minute video of his studio. That's something that would certainly be shared because I think there's nothing quite like seeing the space that an artist, sculptor, composer, whomever occupied. And that's where the ideas happened. I got to get it digitized and get it put up on YouTube. That would be a very noble effort. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Frank Bandurano. Frank, 
in between 78 and now, what were your ideas when you went back there? I think back on the English and the Germans in the 19th century, and for them, the grand tour to Italy was sort of like the great enlightenment in so many ways. It showed them things that nobody had ever seen before. And for a car guy going to Italy, it is literally like going to Mecca. It is. Every year I returned, 79, 80, 81. And each time I went back to Italy, I would be buying parts. And I was going to the parts manufacturers looking to buy new old stock that they had remaining. And I was visiting more of the designers. I got to know Andrea Zagato. And then I went with to Barani. Well, the oldest surviving design studio in the world, I guess, now. You're exactly right. With their 90th anniversary, they're the last band standing. And I went to Pina Farina, and I got to know all these designers, because my interest is with the designers. Mr. Gandini, Marcello Gandini, Mr. Bertoni. I became good friends with Mr. Bertoni. In fact, I had a one-off Maserati Bertoni 3500GT that I performed a complete restoration on, and I shipped it over to Italy and it was at Bertoni's office in his showroom for one year. And he was really excited about that. That was a beautiful little car with the little fins on the back. Very delicate car. Yeah, it was the last finned car that Scaglioni did before he left Bertoni. And after that, he went on and did the Alfa Tipo 33 Stradale. Probably one of the most beautiful cars ever made. Got to be in the top five. That brought us into 85, 86, 87. The B-Turbo was now coming out, being imported into the U.S. in 1994. Our business was taking off. We were restoring Maseratis because we had all the parts. We got into restoration and we began restoring Maseratis sent to us from all over the world. And in January of 1990, the market crashed. And so we got completely out of the restoration business and just focused on parts. But at that time, our Concorso Italiano was starting to get legs. We had founded the Concorso in 1986. By 1990, it was becoming a thing. One door closes and another door opens. I remember my first attending back in the late 90s, maybe. To me, it was a dream come true. None of this stuffy concourse business with guys in bow ties and blue blazers and straw hats. This was enthusiasts. And by the way, a carpet of red. Ferraris that I'd ever seen in my life. And the exciting thing about Concorso is that you get to see all the Etcetarini, all the cars that don't start with an F or even an L or an M. You get to see cars that you'd never even imagined. To me, it's one of the best enthusiast events in the world. That was by design. That was the whole idea, is to have unique cars there that you just don't see every day of all Italian persuasion. I had a guy, he said, I got a Cis Italia. Of course, we all know that it was designed by Peter Farina, right? So as far as Concorso Italiano, went. If you had an Italian design car, I don't care if it had an American engine, it was Italian. If it had Italian running gear and a German body, it was Italian. So this guy calls me and says, I got a Swiss Italia. And I says, great. He says, but it's unrestored and the glass isn't in it. It's just a shell. Needs restoration. I says, fine, bring it. And the guy says, really? And I said, yes, it's a Swiss Italia. It's a piece of art. It was the first car to define the shape of things to come. Never mind that it had a crappy little Fiat 1100cc engine in it. That didn't matter. It was the shape. It was the aerodynamics. It didn't matter, but there it was. It was on the lawn at Concorso Italiano, and people were looking at it, and they were going, okay, and then they got it. It's not a finished running car, but it's beautiful, and it's here. That's the idea. That was a very forward-thinking concept, especially today when finally some of the Grand Concours open up classes to unrestored cars, and some of these things look like they came out of King Tut's tomb. We were the first car show to not judge the cars. That was the secret sauce. That's 
that's what differentiated Concorso Italiano from every other car show that came before us. You just showed up and had a good time. It was just a bunch of car guys getting together, enjoying each other, and enjoying the cars. Well, isn't that what it's all about? Robert, what a lot of people don't know is that Mr. Giugiaro had a hand in Concorso Italiano. Oh, do tell. So you might ask, how can that be? Well... Back in 1981, I get a telex from Ital Design, the PR department, saying Mr. Giugiaro and Mr. Giuliani Molinari are going to be in Aspen, Colorado, attending the Aspen Design Conference. The theme of the design conference this year is the Italian idea. And he said Mr. Giugiaro wanted to know if I, Frank Mandarano, could assemble some cars that he had designed and have their owners bring their cars to Aspen, Colorado to be in a Giugiaro display of design, he was going to give a presentation on stage during his moment on stage, and then he was going to take the fans, the people there, out to the cars and then talk about each car and how he designed it and what's unique about it. I sent a telex back saying, yeah, I'd be delighted. And I did. I had Ghibli's, Boras, Mirax, a new Quattroport. I had them there. The poster for the Italian idea was all these designers from Italy that were there, including Missoni, all the car designers and fabric designers and clothing designers. Some of the best just furniture, fabric, fashion, everything, all the industrial design. It's the who's who. Bertolucci was there, the film director. His presentation was off the charts. So we went down, we met Giugiaro at the Italian Idea, and it was all Italian. This became the impetus, and I had a poster, and then years later, a couple, three years later, when we were doing our Maserati car show at Quail Lodge, this idea, this Italian idea kept coming back in my mind of having just Italian cars at this car show, an Italian car only car show. Well, it certainly has endured, and it remains the most energetic and exciting gathering of Italian cars in the world. What happened is in the early 80s, we were having our Maserati meets. We'd have a meet at Silverado and Napa Valley, and we'd have about 70 Maseratis. And then we'd go to Reno, Nevada. I think Reno was our first one. We had about 50 Maseratis. We did in Southern Oregon. We had about 50 Maseratis, 60 Maseratis. And then we'd go to someplace else. And then one year, we decided to go to Monterey. I think it was 84, 85. And we went to Monterey, and we had our car show in downtown Monterey. Maseratis only. And so the next year, we were in Monterey, and the owners of the Maseratis were telling us, why don't you have your meets in Monterey during the Monterey weekend. Have you thought about combining your Maserati meet with Monterey? Well, if you listen to your customers, they'll tell you what they want. So my wife went out to Quail Lodge and she talked to Mike Patterson, may he rest in peace, about using their driving range to have our Maserati car show. And then we'd have a lunch. We'd buy a lunch. So he says, yeah, that's fine. You guys buy a box lunch and you can use the driving range. And I think he charges some nominal amount of money. It wasn't very much. And so we went out to Quail Lodge and we put all of our Maseratis on the lawn and we had a lunch. And I looked around and I thought, oh my Lord, what a beautiful location. Well, they had about 70 Maseratis. And we had a wonderful little lunch and it was fantastic. I got back to Seattle and I called my friend Jim Hetty of the Lamborghini Club. Sure, I knew Jim well. And I says, next year, what are you guys doing on Friday next year? He said, I don't know, nothing, what? And he says, well, why don't you join us out of Quail Lodge? We have our Maserati Concours and you guys could come out and join us. We'll have a little lunch and bring our cars out there. He says, yeah, that sounds good. So the next year, that would have been like 85 maybe, we had about 30, 40 Lamborghinis and about 70 Maseratis. And that was impressive to see all those cars on the lawn. We had a lunch. I even think we rented a tent one night and we had a dinner out there with the Lamborghini Club and the Maserati Club. The third year, we invited the Pantera Club to join us. Lamborghini Club, Maserati Club. Now, we weren't charging any fees. There was no gate. There was no price to get in. You just showed up. And there was no press. We didn't tell anybody about it. It was just us. 
The fourth year, we invited the Alfa Romeo Club, Iso Grifo Club, Pantera Club. Now we're starting to get like 250, 300 cars. There's only one mark that's conspicuously absent. By design, we did not invite the Ferrari Club because we knew instinctively that if we'd invited them, they'd have showed up with 200 cars and they'd have taken over the event. So on the fifth year, a lot of guys that own Maseratis and Lamborghinis own Ferraris and they were telling their friends. And so the Ferrari guys were starting to hear about it and they were calling saying, well, can we come out there and can I come out? Uh, can I bring my Ferrari? I said, sure. So on the sixth year, we invited the Ferrari club. By that time, the Concours had established itself and had taken off and we began charging a $10 to gate to get in. So you could register your car for 20 bucks or something like that. It took off from there, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. We had a program, 91. We invited Julio Alfieri and Tom Charta. They were our first guest. One story about the Concorso that was very memorable was when Pina Frina came. He was a guest judge over at Pebble Beach, and I invited him to come over to Concorso. He said I could come over about 2 o'clock. We sent the driver over to Pebble Beach to pick him up, and he came back. And I met him at the front of Quail Lodge at the clubhouse. And we walked through the clubhouse, and we walked out onto that deck. From there, you could look out, and you see a sea of cars. So Sergio comes through there, and he walks out onto the deck, and he sees thousands of people and hundreds of cars and a sea of red. And the ninth fairway with 400 Ferraris, and he became visibly shaken. Is that right? And he kept mumbling to me. I had no idea of the magnitude of this event. I just have no idea the magnitude. This is unbelievable. And then Chuba, the general manager, asked him if he could get him something. And he said, yeah, can I get a beer, please? And Chuba went and got him a beer and boy, he just quaffed it right down. He was just totally amazed that there would be that many Italian cars in one place like that. And I walked him down onto the field and he was just mobbed like a rock star. <laughs> People were asking for his autograph and Sergio Pietrina. And he gave a presentation with the microphone at our makeshift stage. And he was just brilliant. Brilliant. The guy was just, he had every move down. He just knew everything to say, and he knew how to work the fans and the crowds. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Well, we have to take a quick break, Frank, but we'll be right back in just a moment. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find The beauty of working. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Well, you've certainly had a lot of great cars go through your hands, and you visited a lot of great car people in Italy. What about the factories? You mentioned you went to the Maserati factory. What about Lamborghini, Ferrari, some of the others, or maybe some of the workshops that were in the back alleys? As it turned out, I was uh, very good friends with Giulio Alfieri. I had met him very early on on that first trip, 78, I believe I met him. Well, when Di Tommaso took over the Maserati factory, of course, they gave Giulio Alfieri 15 minutes to get out of his office. It was just horrible. The disrespect for 
for that man after all those years. As you probably know, he went to Lamborghini and became the CEO of Lamborghini. And so I'd go out to visit Giulio Alfieri at Lamborghini. He would welcome me out there and we'd go walk around the assembly line and they were making Countaches and milling machines, making 12 cylinders, much smaller operation than today. Each year when I went back to Italy, I'd go to Lamborghini and visit Mr. Alfieri. I remember my first trip to the Lamborghini factory, maybe first or second, and the very last Diablo was coming off the line and following it was the very first Murcielago. And I was astounded. I saw a pair of legs hanging out the passenger compartment. The mechanic was inside the car under the dashboard of this Murcielago, very first one. I see these feet on the ground and two hands kind of waving and in one hand was a crescent wrench and in the other hand was a cigarette. <laughs> and this is in 2001. You can't make this stuff up. And I think that's why the magic of these cars has endured into the 21st century. There's something special. There's something human about that. Now, of course, I'm sure the executives at Lamborghini would recoil in horror if they thought that their personnel were building cars that way today. But it proves that there's something really special and human about these cars. Yeah, it does. And I've seen it all back in those early days, walking through the Maserati factories and Lamborghini factories and up to Di Tommaso. Di Tommaso was even much more relaxed. There'd be four or five guys in there building a complete car. Yeah, really amazing to watch them do that. Despite your preference for Maserati, you're also a Ferrari owner. I know we talked briefly before about your Daytona Spider. That's got to be a whole lot of fun. Certainly a classic from the era. Several years ago, I decided that, well, actually, it's been about 10 years. I had a 360 Spider, six-speed. It was a fantastic car, but I just wasn't driving it enough. Beautiful car. The 360 might be my favorite of the, I'd call it, later generation Ferraris, just in terms of the look. It's a beautiful, simple form. It's got the lines that, for me, frankly, the 430 and the 458 and the 488 just don't have. The 360 was pure and a clean sheet of paper. There's nothing on the 360 that fit on any other car. Montezemolo came in and made a whole new car. The 430 was nothing more than a 360 that they added some lipstick and earrings and a miniskirt. <laughs> they kind of dolled up the 360 and said, okay. But it did have a chain-driven engine and had some technical details that were quite interesting. But the 360 for me is, I agree with you. In terms of purity of line, man, that's the one. Where I really decided I wanted a Ferrari, a classic Ferrari, was during the Car Guy Tour, we would visit Stefano Allegretti. And he's a small body shop in Modena. And at the time, he was producing California Spiders in all aluminum. He was taking a 250 Ferrari chassis and he was removing the bodies and he was putting a all alloy body on these 250 and 330 Ferrari chassis making a reproduction California Spider. Exactly. I was there and he had five California Spiders in production. One was finished in dark navy blue and with tan leather, and then the other ones were in various stages of assembly. And I thought, wow, I could never afford a California Spider. They're eight, nine million dollars. I might be able to afford a reproduction, especially one that Allegretti did. And Stefano Allegretti, I'd known his father. So I thought, I should be thinking about getting one of those Allegretti Spiders. A few years go by, I get a few bucks, and I thought, well, how about a cut Daytona Spider? That's got to be a good buy. I think that's a great buy. One of the Strayman versions, right? Or Sheehan. Sheehan did some very good work. It kind of depends on the customer. You see, these cars are all over the board. There's about 120 of them that were cut. And sometimes they just cut the ass end off and put a top on them. When the restorer asks the customer, do you want us to put steel fender wells in it? They say, well, how much is that? Well, that's an extra 15000 No, 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 no. Don't want that. So some of them just simply had the tail cut and a convertible top installed. And they didn't have all these extra details. 
Some of them had all the details. I don't know how many of them out there are sketchy, but probably half of them. Now, Strayman did some good work, but he was bound by his customer. Uh, Mike Sheehan did some great work. After you cut three or four cars, you become very good at it. But arguably, the best guy in the world was Franco Bacchelli at Autosport in Modena. Modena had cut about 25 cars, and a lot of them were done at the request of the factory or people in Italy under the direction of Scaglietti. They didn't authorize them, but they didn't complain about it. Let's put it that way. That's fascinating. They called it re-coach built, but it didn't have a letter. There was no letter saying, we authorize you to make this. So Franco Bacchelli did about 25 of them. And of those 25, he rebodied two cars. Now, the difference between a rebody and a cut is a cut car just has the ass end cut off and a new ass end put on. A rebody is a coupe body is lifted off the chassis, set out and back and stacked on the other coupe bodies, and an all new alloy spider body was built on my chassis. So, my car is uh, one of two alloy bodied cars done by Franco. Kelly. The other car was done for Rene Arnault, the Formula One driver. And typically, Ferrari gave their Formula One drivers cars. In on the deal was 10000 bucks or a million bucks, whatever it was, plus we'd give you a new car. Well, Rene got a new car and he sent it over to Bacchelli to have it rebodied as a spider. Bacchelli rebodied my car and Rene Arnault's car in period in 1979. So the car was only, what, eight years old, six years, seven years old, something like that. Practically a new car. Bacchelli rebodied it and Lupi, the well-known brand name interior trimmer in Modena, Lupi did the interior. Luby, the father, the father has passed away. The son is still in business. And so I feel as though I have a very, very special car. That is a fantastic car. So Frank, I wanted to learn a little bit about your car guy tour. I know that's something you've been doing for a long time. Tell us how it works and tell us what's involved. I've been going to Italy since 1978, really 1971, pretty much every year after 1978. And I found that in the 90s, I was going to the same places. I would land in Milan. I'd go over to see my friend Zagato. In fact, I kept a Renault 18i station wagon at Zagato. I had shipped it over from Seattle because I was going to Italy so much. Rather than renting a Fiat 500, I figured I'd ship a Renault over there and have it to drive around. But I couldn't get it registered. I says, what do you mean? It's not homologous. What do you mean? It's a European car. What are you guys talking about? The Italians wouldn't let me register it. So in my luggage, I'd bring the Washington state license plate. I'd fly into <laughs> Lenardi Airport, take a taxi cab over to Zagato, have a coffee with Andrea, go out, throw a set of jumper cables on the Renault 18i station wagon, fire it off, take off. And then I'd go visit all the guys. I'd go to Turin and visit Tom Charta and Mr. DiPertoni and Pina Farina and Tal Design. And I'd go to G Studio and he's Senior Gavina, the salt, the greatest interior man in the world. And then I go to Modena and I go see Maserati, Pagani, Lamborghini, all these places, right? So I was going to these same places every year. Milan, Turin, Modena. Milan, Turin, Modena. I call it the gasoline triangle. So I thought, why don't I take some people with me? And so the Car Guy Tour was born. I branded the Car Guy Tour in 1998. And I think there were 40 guys that went on the first tour, which is too many. And we all rented cars. I wasn't smart enough to think about a bus. No cell phones in 1998. No GPS. Old-fashioned maps. So we land, and that was the first year that I included airfare. I never did that again. We landed in Lenarte. Malpensa was still not open. It's about 6 o'clock at night. It's dark. 
It's raining. Everyone's all jet lagged out. Well, they pick up the rental cars and I says, get your rental cars. We'll meet you out front and we'll have a driver's meeting and then we'll head off to Turin. It's raining. We're having a driver's meeting. And I say, okay, guys, follow me. We're going to exit the airport and take a right and follow the green signs to the Autostrada and then head to Turin. We go down to the stoplight. The stoplight turns green. I turn right. The guy behind me turns left. Oh, man. And you were instantly lost. <laughs> They're instantly lost. So I just kept going. Two, three hours later, they come trickling into the hotel with their war stories. It was a disaster. But we had a good time. So that was the first of them. And I guess you've been doing it ever since. Each year, it got easier and better. We had systems to work with. We got radios. The first thing we did was got little walkie-talkie radios. And everybody brought those. And then we had the guy in the back was the tail gunner. And so when he cleared the light, he'd flash his light. So that let us know that we could go. If half the convoy got stalled, we'd pull over to the right with our four-way blinkers on. And then when the tail gunner came through the stoplight, he'd flash his lights and then we'd pull out. But what really changed everything was GPS and then the bus. For the last 10 years, we've been riding in a bus and the bus is the best. People get to know each other. And by the way, you get up high inside and you get to see the landscape and it's pretty nice. The bus picks you up in the morning. We go out to the visits. We have lunch. We get back around five o'clock. Go to have aperitif, break up to go to dinner. People wander around the village. It works out great. How long do you guys go for? It's 11 days and 11 nights. That's a real tour, man. This year's tour sold out in about 15 days. Is that right? In January. And so the COVID hit in February and then things kind of got really weird in March and April. So May, I wrote everybody a letter and said, we don't know what's going to happen in September. We don't know if the flights are going to be open. We don't know if Italy's going to be open. We don't know anything. And if it is open, there's going to be a big dark cloud over everybody. And all they're going to be talking about is COVID. Why don't we just take all of our deposits and roll them over to 2021 and then we'll go then 100% of the group I was just surprised came back as a great idea we're in count us in so next year the Monza tour is sold out and then I'm doing a second tour beginning on September 19th and that's got about 20 seats left how does somebody find out about that they simply go to carguytour.com from there they can email me and or give me a call I'm very visible and very reachable we see places that you just normally couldn't get into. Like we get into the Maserati factory in Turin. It's only for dealers and distributors. In fact, I had the Maserati factory in Modena. The gal there called me and she said, how did you get into the Quattroport factory? And she says, <laughs> could you give me a contact? I got some people that want to go there and can you help? And she works at Maserati. It's who you know. And obviously, you know a lot of people and you've been doing it from the get-go. Really, in a lot of ways, Maserati thought about it. They'd probably have to take their hat off to you for preserving the mark for all all those strange, dark years when nobody else really did. We were doing our best to share the heritage of Maserati and keep the flame alive, really. Touring those factories, they're important. It's an important thing. I remember in 2000, and on that tour, nine guys bought new Maseratis in 2000. Nine guys, including me. So don't tell me that visiting the factory is not important for sales. Because when you're standing in the factory watching the car being built, there's an emotional connection that takes place. You want to relive that experience of watching them install the dash and the glass and the engine and the car coming down on the engine. It's really true. Thanks to Frank Mandurano for joining us today on Cars That Matter. We won't be releasing a show next week, so now's the perfect time to follow and subscribe to this podcast so you get notified the minute our next episode goes live. We'll see you Monday, the week after next, to continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive.
This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.